Listener Production. Take it away, my sultry, dulcet, toned Adonis. <laughs> and go. Hello, Gistners, and welcome back to another episode of Just the Gist, a weeklyish podcast where Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party at some yep. point in the future. Rosie, always a pleasure. How are you? I'm good, my love. Your hair's looking particularly blonde and curly today. It's looking particularly 90s boy band. I think it's just decided today oh, to part itself that's in the middle. Oh, that's why I'm attracted to it. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I understand. <laughs> a little bit of Nick Carter, a little bit of Justin Timberlake. I like it. How are you, Still my love? Still going. Yeah, really, really well. Thank you. You're doing the story this week. So work-free day for me. <laughs> Yeehaw. What are you doing? Tell me. Um, I have absolutely no idea I never have any idea whether you're going to know the story that I'm about to tell you or not. <laughs> this is the story of a guy called, and I love this name so much, Marmaduke Wetherell and his attempt to take down the Daily Mail. I don't know anything about this. <laughs> um, Marmaduke, his name sounds like a Disney villain. Doesn't it just, yes. What it say it again? Marmaduke Wetherell. His full name actually is Marmaduke Arundel Wetherell. Well, I, I demand that you say his entire name every time you say his name. <laughs> okay, <laughs> deal. All right, so shall we first do... Take it away. Breaking news. Breaking news, breaking news. X-ray, X-ray, read all about it. I got the scoop, I see a breaking news. You know, someone messaged me... <laughs> The amount of messages and opinions I get about the breaking news theme song. Someone messaged me this week and said, um, Rosie, I don't know if anyone's told you this, but the words aren't extra, extra, it's extra, extra. <laughs> and I didn't reply, but I was like, yes, I know. That's the point of my brilliant transatlantic old school news cap boy accent. They say extra, mm-hmm. extra instead of extra, extra. Did someone really think I thought the words <laughs> were extra, extra, not extra, extra? So anyway, thanks. But I was aware of the word extra as part of the English language. <laughs> um, before we get into breaking news today, I want to say a little something, a little, a little serious something, well, sort mm. of serious. Mm. Um basically just going to tell some people to go and get effed. Great. Okay, cool. So um, I just want to talk briefly about something that happened in the last week. Mm. I posted on my social media channels that I would be marching um, at the protest demanding justice for Aboriginal deaths in custody and in support of Black Lives Matter and Aboriginal Lives Matter. And Mm. um, after I posted that, I lost probably more than a 1,000 followers across my social media within the next 24 hours, mostly from Facebook because that's where all the basic Karens tend to be. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Now, um, I understand that there was disagreement about whether those protests should have happened given the ongoing risk of COVID-19. I thought personally that this was a moment where protests around the world had reached an important point 
And to miss that point where awareness and anger and emotion and solidarity reaches critical mass was not something that the Aboriginal people in this country should be expected to miss. Mm -hmm. Um, They've been telling us that we're killing them for years. Mm. And for the first time in years, violence against black people is an issue centre of the world stage. Like people are listening right now, people are seeing right now, people are horrified right now. So right Mm. now is the time for Aboriginal people to march because the world's taking notice right now. And I don't think they could miss that. Mm -hmm. Um, I also figured that the virus is not where it was two months ago. Lock-in rules have been or are currently being relaxed to allow people Mm -hmm. at sports games, in bars, restaurants, public parks, beaches. Schools opened a couple of weeks ago. The protest organisers were making it super clear on social media that health and safety and hygiene was paramount to them. Social distancing was going to be encouraged as best as possible. Masks and hand sanitizer were required to be used by everyone attending. So given all of that, I decided that personally... I would attend Mm -hmm. the protest. I wanted Mm -hmm. to support the Aboriginal people of this country in that critical moment. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to make around a 1,000 of my followers very unhappy, which I know because they unfollowed and people are always very vocal about telling you when they're unfollowing because what's the point in unfollowing unless you say something bitchy and abusive on your way out? You have to make (laughs) a dramatic exit, right? Yes, make the big dramatic exit. Mm -hmm. So I want to say this to you now. If my support of Black Lives Matter makes you so angry that you want to unfollow me, then good riddance. Like, please Mm. let the door hit you hard on the way out. (laughs) Like, if you were frustrated with me because of your concerns about COVID-19, I understand that. Quite a few people commented that while they support the reasons for the protests themselves, they didn't agree it should be done at this moment in time. And I get that. I don't agree with it, but I get it. I mean, I argued with my own partner about it. Caleb, you know, he he didn't agree with the protests happening at this point in time. And I said, mm. I think you're an idiot. I'll see you in a few hours. But, you know, um, we agreed to disagree on that. And a mm. lot of people commented that I was insinuating that anybody who decided not to protest was a racist, which mm. is ridiculous. I said mm. no such thing. Although I do think that if you looked at my post and it immediately made you feel accused of racism, you might need to do some introspection as to why that is, just quietly. Mm-hmm. But my point is disagreeing about the timing of the protest is one thing. We can disagree about that and still get along and respect each other. But being so angry that I'm attending a Black Lives Matter protest that you unfollow me, I think that's another thing entirely. And I think it says something more about what is really making you angry. Mm-hmm. So I say again... If my support of Black Lives Matter and Aboriginal Lives Matter and the fight against Aboriginal deaths in custody makes you so angry that you want to abuse and unfollow me, then good riddance. I don't want you following me. I don't want you listening to my podcasts. I don't want you reading my books. I don't want you coming to my shows. I don't want you watching me on television. I don't want you as a fan. I don't want someone as a fan who says in one breath that they think the protest is wrong because they're worried about the spread of COVID and in the next breath says, well, if they get to march, then we should be allowed to open everything back up. It's like, oh, so which is it, Karen? Are you worried Mm -hmm. about COVID or are you just annoyed that they got to march when Mm -hmm. you haven't been allowed to go out for two months? And they, by the way, are Aboriginal people protesting, oh, you know, just hundreds of years of racism and violence resulting in deaths that continue today. I don't want someone as a fan who says on Twitter that my Aboriginal niece 
who received a scholarship to boarding school from a program that aims to bridge the well-documented education gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians, is proof that Indigenous people are actually the most privileged in this country because she got a freebie and she will spend her whole life getting freebies just like the rest of them. People said that to you? Yes. I don't want someone as a fan on Facebook who says that my niece should shut the fuck up about experiencing racism in her private school because she should just be grateful that the taxpayer is paying for her to be there. So you got called the N-word. Kids bully each other. Get over it. Don't be so ungrateful. You're joking. No, I'm not joking. These are the kinds of things people have been saying to me the last week. Those were the kinds of people who unfollowed me, not mm. just people who disagreed about the safety of protesting in this moment, of which I had a res- you know respectful exchanges with quite a few people about that, not mm. those people. The people who unfollowed me seem to have something a lot more to their anger, something sinister, something I'm not interested in indulging. I don't want people like that as fans, so as far as I'm concerned, the last week just did the job of weeding out then hauling out the trash. Mm-hmm. Good riddance. Mm-hmm. So that's all I have to say about my unfollowers. And I also just want to say Jacob and I, as two white hosts of a silly podcast who only have qualifications in acting, story writing and nonsense, would you agree? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Makeup artistry and skincare. Thank you very much. Oh, yes. Sorry. Of course. And me, Titanic facts and Polly Pocket collecting. Um, (laughs) We are not the people who should be sitting here pontificating on race in the last week and what will no doubt be weeks and months to come of people rising up to demand change that they deserve. Now is the time for people like us to just shut the hell up, mm-hmm. to listen, to learn, to research, to donate, to amplify the voices of black and Aboriginal people. So mm-hmm. we've made a little list of recommendations that I'm going to read to you now and we'll put the links in the show notes and please just read one of these books or listen to one of these podcasts, donate to one of these charities. In exchange for dropping this podcast today, Jacob and I want you to please just click on one, at least one of these links in the show notes. Mm. All right. So here's um, some cool stuff from Aboriginal people, black people, people of colour that you should be um, tuned into. Podcasts. You should listen to Speaking Out. It's um, the ABC's weekly Indigenous affairs show. It's hosted by Larissa Berendt. She's a professor and the chair of Indigenous research at the Jambana Indigenous House of Learning. Pretty for an Aboriginal is hosted by Nakia Louie and Miranda Tapsall. Um, They're not doing episodes anymore, but they did some amazing interviews with people like Yael Stone, Roxanne Gay, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, Listen to Breathless, which uh, is a podcast by Guardian Australia that follows the inquest of David Dungay Jr.'s death in custody. He's an Aboriginal man who died a couple years ago saying the exact thing that uh, George Floyd just died saying, I can't breathe. Um, Listen to 1619, a podcast by the New York Times about America's history with slavery, and listen to Floodlines, a podcast by The Atlantic about the incredibly racist way America handled the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. You should read Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, an anthology filled with stories by Aboriginal writers about what it's like to grow up in this country. You should read Welcome to Country by Marsha Langdon, Australia Day by Stan Grant, The Tall Man by Chloe Hooper. So you want to talk about race by Igeoma Oloo. White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo, How to Be Less Stupid About Race by Crystal M. Fleming, 
White Tears, Brown Scars by Ruby Hamad. And also go to Twitter and the last week there's been an amazing hashtag called Black in the Ivory. And it's all uh, black uh, people, uh, people of colour talking about what it's like uh, to work in predominantly white workspaces mm. um, and the experiences they've had. Follow on Twitter Linda June Co, Amy Maguire, Nakia Louie, Roxy Moore, Nayuka Gori, Indigenous X, Roxanne Gay, NITV, Ray Johnson. Like I said, Ray Johnston, like I said, we'll have all the links in the show notes. Um, watch the most recent episode of Q&A, but in particular, Mine Wyatt's monologue from his play City of Gold at the end. They're saying that it is, and I agree, probably two of the most powerful minutes on Australian television in history. Um, watch The Final Quarter and The Australian Dream, documentaries about Adam Goods and how he was forced out of AFL because of racism. Watch In My Blood, It Runs, a documentary about a 10-year-old Aboriginal boy trying to balance his traditional upbringing with public school education in uh, Alice Springs. Watch After the Apology. It's a documentary about grandmothers against removal. They're a group that uh, highlights and campaigns against the inherent racism in the child protection system in this country. Watch anything on NITV. That's National Indigenous TV on SBS. Watch 13th, the documentary on uh, Netflix about uh, black men in custody in America. And watch When They See Us, a miniseries about the Central Park Five, which is just gut-wrenching and must-see viewing. Um, Donate to the fundraiser for justice for David Dungay Jr. Um, The proceeds of that are going towards, you know, helping his family and friends uh, be able to attend court hearings and to pay for the legal proceedings and all that kind of stuff. Campaign, uh, donate to a campaign called Free Her, which is set up to pay warrants and bail and court costs so Indigenous women can be freed or kept out of prison. And donate to the Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, for many Aboriginal people, that's the only way they can access representation. So that is all the stuff you should listen to, watch, read, donate to, follow. Um, This is just me taking a few minutes to amplify those Black and Indigenous voices um, because I think, you know, with this podcast and the reach we have, no one wants to hear us talking about race. We're idiots, um, but we can amplify those voices on this platform that we have. So that's what I wanted to do. So please, in exchange for listening today, go and click on some of those links. Very, very well put. And if I can, there are two things that I would add to that list. Two books that um, I found really transformative for me. Um, One that I read quite recently and one that I read when I was much younger. Um, Blood on the Waddle is Mm -hmm. um, a really, really hard to read book, um, but it tells you so much about what it was like to be an Aboriginal in the first 200 years of white settlement in Australia um, Mm. and Dark Emu, which really does give you an insight into what life was like before we actually got here on this continent. And it does so much to inform you about the sort of rich cultural heritage that was stomped on once um, the English arrived in Australia to settle. Good suggestions. I was I was going to put both of them on the list, but the list got quite long and I wanted to put in a few of those books that um, tell you that you're an idiot when it comes to race and here's a, here's a useful way of talking about it. <laughs> but we'll add those to the list. <laughs> cool. Anyway, so breaking news. My favourite breaking news this week is... <laughs> so do you remember when we did our episode about Lorena Bobbitt? Yeah. 
And in the end, we talked about where John Bobbitt had ended up. And he had ended up um, saying that he was uh, investing his life savings in going to look for buried treasure in the Fen Forest. Yes. Because it was rumoured that there was a chest full of a million dollars worth of gold and stuff and um, he was like, this is my life now, I'm going to go find the treasure. Tell me he found it. He didn't find it, but someone did. <laughs> In the last week, someone found the Fen Forest treasure. It's... Uh, I looked into it because I honestly, when I read that about John Bobbitt, I was like, oh, what a stupid thing. I bet that's a rumour that idiots... You know, and people have died looking for it. Um, mm. And I just thought it was a dumb thing. But when someone found it this week, I was like, wait, that's actually a thing? And I went and looked into it and it was a guy um, who was in his 70s and just decided that he wanted to bury a treasure and, and like, get people excited about looking for it. And so he, I think he was an author and in his book he um, had a poem that he wrote that was kind of like a riddle about where yeah. it would be. And he said to people, you know, it's in this 20,000 square mile bit of wilderness, mm. off you go. Mm. And um, people have died looking for it. People have spent all their money looking for it. John Wayne Bobbitt had a red hot go. And in the last week, the author said, somebody sent me a photo of them with the chest. It has been found. And it literally was a treasure chest <laughs> that this guy had buried. And it was filled with over a million dollars. And apparently the value of it would have gone up because he buried it like 20 years ago or something uh-huh. of solid gold and gold dust and jewels and all other kinds of things. And someone found it. Wow. Firstly, I know. I- I want that kind of money that I can just go <laughs> ahead and bury a million bucks in the forest and watch people go and try to find it. I know. Um, so much entertainment there. But what is John Wayne Bobbitt going to do with his time now? I don't know. I make more seedy porn. Who knows? Uh. Abuse more women. <laughs> Who knows <laughs> what a terrible person like that does with their free time. Um, my other favourite breaking news this week is that... Kylie Jenner lied about being a billionaire. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you think that's true? Uh, I started reading into it and there was just so much detail involved and I just couldn't pretend to care about a Kardashian. I know. It was a lot of financial nitty-gritty stuff, but apparently the story that I sort of took from it was that it's all Chris Jenner. It's all stage mum. Yep. who um, apparently had been... So Fortune magazine doesn't just randomly, you know, write about people. Like, apparently Chris mm. Jenner had been lobbying them for, like, three years to come mm. and do a profile on Kylie and to come and, like, take her photo and put her in Fortune's top whatever they have. Yep. And she was sending them details, like, here's our tax returns and here's this and here's this and here's this. And so eventually they were like, oh, Wowzers, she actually is a billionaire. Like, this is a story. Let's go do it. But apparently, like, all the documents were kind of doctored. <laughs> and Fortune magazine has figured out that, like, Chris Jenner just wanted the press and, like, the prestige <laughs> of being, like, Kylie Jenner's a billionaire. But really, and this is the thing that I find so funny. 
Fortune magazine's like, mm, actually, she's only worth $900 million. And it's like... <laughs> It's not like you're saying she's not a billionaire and she's actually only got 20 million bucks. Like, she still has $900 million. Like, yeah. close enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd take it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what I did find fascinating, though, was um, the dollar amounts dropping, dropping, dropping ever since she sold most of the company to Cody. The value of it has just plummeted. Yeah, you're a makeup person. Why do you think that is? Um, I think a lot of people got caught up in the hype of something that was brand new and Mm. then I saw so many people submitting really, really bad reviews and returning their product because it was just terribly poor quality. Mm. Um, So it did what a lot of brands do, which is launch with a bang and then people lose interest. So it's really hard to maintain that sort of um, growth cycle that most sustainable companies are going for. Speaking of your expertise, mm-hmm. I got this message. I must know, aside from being an actual podcast icon, what is <laughs> Jacob's real life big boy job? <laughs> I vote I vote adjust the gist expose on Jacob Stanley titled Jacob Life Before Pod. <laughs> People are getting curious about you. They want to know what your dealio is. Well, how about okay, how about mystery. How about next week before we do the episode, I do a little mini interview with Jacob about what your deal is. Okay. My people are going to have to see the questions ahead of time to make them, <laughs> but sure. Okay. All right. Well, that's all. I don't know. That's all my breaking news this week. Just some silly crap. What's yours? Nothing much. Oh, no, I'm hanging out with cows and horses and dogs on a farm and that means that I have very, very, very little to report. Mm. Let's get into it. All right. Okay, well, here's where I get to uh, sit back, chillax, and uh, just be entertained. Enjoy the ride. By uh, who has most recently been called podcast icon, Jacob Stanley. (laughs) (laughs) Take it away. (laughs) Coming to you live from my aunt's bedroom. What are Um, we doing? The story of Marmadello Arlington... (laughs) What's he? Cumberpatch. <laughs> Is that his name? That's his name? Marshmallow Ling. <laughs> Wings Rex Springer. We've got to get over Shit's Creek. It's over. It's over. Oh, my God. They did that thing with Mariah It'll... Carey. Yes. We, Go and look on YouTube. Shit's Creek, Mariah Carey. It's amazing. You've got to watch it. Okay. Back to the story. Yeah. Shit's Creek will never be over, never be dead. All right. Best I wishes. don't kindest regards. <laughs> okay. All <laughs> our, right. Our producer Felix is getting so antsy. He's like, stop the story. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Felix. Okay. Let's go. All right. <clears throat> I do not yet have a cutesy title for this story. Um, <gasps> How dare I'm you? I'm happy to take submissions. And I know that you've set up a special email inbox. Um, oh, yes. Breaking news. Oh, my God. Sorry. For, sorry, Felix. More breaking news. I set up <laughs> because I keep getting messages from into my account, into the Just the Gist Instagram account, on my Facebook, on my Twitter. But you know what? Let's make one place where everyone can send comments, suggestions, complaints, um, <laughs> grieve your annoyances about the breaking news song. Everything you want to do, please send it to... Just the gist podcast at gmail.com. Ta-da. Ta-da. That took me and five seconds to set up. 
<laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Gmail. Can we have some money? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, yeah, so send everything there. Okay, Jacob, go. Including submissions for the title of this story, which exposes the truth behind the surgeon's photo. And mm. before I get into the actual story, I have to give you a little bit of context about how I landed on this topic. You, my dear, are absolutely responsible for this one because Ooh. you and your constant talk of Pete Evans going full thundering lunatic crackpot oh, conspiracy yes. theorist. Oh my God, the 60 minutes into you. No, yeah. keep going. <laughs> so that sort of set me off looking into some of the different kooky things that um, various crackpots believe these days. And then I decided to go back in time, get a little bit nostalgic nostalgic and revisit the first ever conspiracy theory that I'd ever encountered when I was a little kid, Mm. the Loch Ness Monster. Ah. Mm -hmm. And then when I started to dig around a little bit, I found this cute little story that combines two of what you know to be my absolute favourite narrative elements, pettiness and a desire for revenge. (laughs) Yes. Okay, keep going. (laughs) I'm on board. I'm on the train. So you're strapped in and you're going to hear this story about how a British South African man named Marmaduke Arundel Wetherell set out to destroy the Daily Mail. Okay. And you could say that this is simultaneously one of the most successful hoaxes in history while being also one of the least successful revenge plots in history. Okay. Um, the hoax part was getting people to believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Loch Ness Monster was real and that photographic evidence existed. And like I said, that part worked an absolute treat. If anything, that worked too well. Mm. Um, the revenge part, the plan to destroy the Daily Mail, that didn't quite land. As we know, they continue to spew forth a lot of sensationalist crap and gossip every single day. So when was this? When is this time... This is back in the early 1930s. I had no idea the Daily Mail had been around that long. Yeah, the Daily Mail started in the late 1800s. There you go. Yes. It was one of the first tabloids um, ever to come into existence. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were kind of trashy from the get-go. Love it. Um, And now at this point, 1932, 1933, even though depression was in full swing, people across the world could not get enough of the Loch Ness Monster. Mm. Um, And that was not to say that a story about this mysterious monster living in a loch was something new or even something that was unique. There are more than 30,000 lochs across Scotland. What is a loch? A loch is the Scottish slash Gaelic word for lake. Oh, and why is... Oh, I never knew this. And what's Ness? That's the name of that loch. So Inverness is the main town. So it's like the Lake Ness. Lake Ness. Monster. Yes, correct. Oh, I never knew that. I always just thought Loch Ness was his name. Like <laughs> the Loch Ness Monster. Like, you know, like that was what they named it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, it's There's a- one for a dinner party. Okay, keep going. Gaelic, Scottish, Irish word for lake. Um, So 30,000 of them scattered all across Scotland and almost every single one of them have some sort of legend attached to them about a hideous, shadowy, sometimes sinister creature that lurks in their depths. Yeah. Um, And Loch Ness has written accounts that go all the way back to the 6th century AD about these mysterious beasts that um, sometimes have snatched bodies and children and dragged them to a watery grave. 
Um, so it was nothing new, but what captured the world's attention about the Loch Ness Monster in 1933 was that there was this sudden burst of eyewitness testimonies from the local villagers and from tourist visitors who claimed that they'd seen a dragon or a giant sea serpent or some sort of huge hideous beast frolicking in the water. And mm. sometimes they said that they saw it on land as well. Sometimes they said it had webbed feet. Sometimes it had flippers. Sometimes it had no limbs whatsoever. Sometimes mm. it had massive horns. Sometimes it had one of those big frilly things around its neck, like the spitty dinosaur thing in oh, Jurassic yeah, the Park one that, that kills Newman. That kills Newman from Seinfeld, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so people were just gripped by the fact that there were all of these different eyewitness accounts and that a lot of them were quite different, but they were trying to draw parallels between the different um, Mm. testimonies that people were making. Um, And the reason why there was suddenly so many reports was because this brand new road had just been opened that ran along the northern shoreline of the lock. And so that meant that loads more people had access to the lock and could observe Ah. it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the world just accepted that, okay, this massive increase in sightings of the monster is just the logical outcome of it's now possible for so many more people to lay eyeballs on the creature. Um, Pretty much unanimously, scientists were united in declaring that the sightings were likely to be either hoaxes or they were optical illusions or they were hallucinations of some sort. But the world just really, really, really wanted to believe and so this snowball effect kicked in. And They're all seeing a different thing. Correct. Like, (laughs) it's not like the Mothman where everybody insists they saw the same thing, a black bat-like creature with red eyes. Like, this is like, they're all like, I saw this and it was completely different to your one, but it's the same one. That's right. Very few of the stories actually corroborated other stories, but what mattered was that they were all getting attention. Yeah. And so more and more people travelled to the lock to try to spot the monster, and then, of course, more and more people claimed that they had seen the monster, and Boy Scout troops went there to spend weeks at a time hunting for the monster. Fishermen saw it, hunters saw it, explorers, they all just converged on the lock. People camped on the shore and they spent days just gazing across the surface with binoculars, <laughs> waiting for Nessie to come splashing around. Um, Nessie. And hundreds of people claimed in a short period of time that they had caught a glimpse. Um, the most I'm sorry, my- but whenever I hear the name Nessie, it reminds me of one of the most infamously terrible scenes in cinematic history where Jacob in Twilight calls Bella's daughter Nessie and she goes, Nessie, you named my daughter after the Loch Ness Monster! (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, people who know what I'm talking about know what I'm talking about. It's like an infamous, terrible scene. Anyway, continue. (laughs) Oh, I had no idea. Cinematic masterpieces all... How many of them? Four of them? I don't know. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nessie. Mm. The most widely published accounts of Nessie came from sources that were deemed to be credible enough to publish. So they were usually people who are in well-respected professions like teachers or, lol, priests. Um, at one point, <laughs> they even had a Nobel Prize winner say that they had seen Nessie and Often the accounts came from couples because the couples would say that they saw the beast together, they could back up each other's stories Uh, and that made it a bit more believable. Uh 
Um, and every newspaper across the UK, a lot from Europe and a lot from the US, sent correspondents to the lock to just cover the story full time. Radio channels across the globe. What a great globe. gig. You're basically just getting sent on a lakefront holiday. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Interview some crazies. <laughs> Wouldn't it be fun? Yeah. Um, radio channels would regularly interrupt a program to provide urgent updates on the most recent sightings of the monster <laughs> because people just could not get enough. It was the biggest headline at the time. And, of course, the Daily Mail needed to make sure that they were the front runners when it came to providing the people with what they wanted, which mm-hmm. was Nessie News all day, every day. Um, the Daily Mail, by the way, at this time was a very proudly pro-fascist and very pro-Hitler publication, oh. but that's a discussion for another time. So they um, just—they have just as lovely a history as they do current reputation. They are nothing if not consistent. <laughs> um, and so they were running these full-page, front-page Nessie updates um, to make as much money as they could off Nessie mania. Mm -hmm. Um, Their biggest scoop came in 1934 when they received four photos uh, that had been submitted to them by a very well-respected surgeon slash gynecologist slash colonel from London. Mm. This was the very first photograph that had ever been captured of Nessie's head and neck up until that point. It was always just of an ambiguous-looking hump in the water or some... um, um, unexplained waves on the surface. Is this, are you talking about that famous photo? It's like black and white and the things. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So to this day, if you were to Google Loch Ness Monster in Google Images, the first picture that's going to come yeah. up is the image that I'm talking to you about now. Um, and that was from the very beginning accepted by many as irrefutable evidence that the monster did exist. And it was <laughs> proof that Nessie did indeed have a long neck, which had become a very popular theory since the release of King Kong the year before. And there was a brontosaurus that appeared in that movie. Yes, so people I was going to say it looks like a brontosaurus. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's what Nessie must look like. Ah. Um, Yes, so a lot of people believed, okay, this finally settles the debate over what the beast's body so shape is. So people think once and the Loch Ness monster looks like that because of a King Kong movie. Yeah, that's where um, <laughs> the theory sort of that's became awesome. popular. Yeah. Um, from that point, people started to believe, oh, you know what it must be? A plesiosaur that got stuck in the lock at some point during the Jurassic period and it's just magically survived 20 or so million years <laughs> to still be here today. Yeah. Um, Makes so sense. The Daily Mail ran the story immediately on their front page with the headline in all caps, Surgeon's Photograph of Lock Monster Exclusive. And ah. they paid this mysterious surgeon £100 for the image and naturally they wanted to get as much information from him as they possibly could about the sighting, but he was instantly very, very reluctant to get involved in any of the publicity surrounding this incredible sighting. Mm. Um, the surgeon that we're talking about was named Robert Kenneth Wilson and he mm. gave the Daily Mail very, very minimal details about how and when he saw and photographed the monster. He said he really wanted to stay out of the spotlight because he was concerned about the medical community, thinking that he was maybe no longer fit to practice because he'd uh, spotted right. a monster. And um, publishing a story with minimal detail, the Daily Mail. What? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah. 
again, consistent yeah. uh, up to this day. Um, that in itself kind of added credibility to the story, the fact that he clearly wasn't doing this to seek attention or glory. Mm. His focus was just on being a man of science within the scientific medical community. Um, he did just tell the Daily Mail enough. Um, so he said he'd been driving along the shore of the lock when he was out for a day of shooting and fishing and killing things while he was up north visiting a friend. Proper and- English things. <laughs> Proud tradition. Oh, wait, it's Scotland, uh, though. Scottish things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did think at some point I would need to whip out a Scottish accent for this. We'll see if something's going to well, come out a little bit later if on. If we're going to practice our Scottish accent, let's do that, uh, the most famous Scottish accent, which is... Um, Groundskeeper Willie? No, the one about the woman who busts her daughters with the shit in the toilet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was f***ing one of yours. Which one of you? Disgusting. 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 <laughs> That's how I always get my Scottish accent on. I'm like, you just say that line a few times. Yeah. <laughs> I just start off with, grease me up, woman. <laughs> grease me up, woman. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh... The surgeon, he'd been out shooting, fishing, yes. killing, driving along, pulled over to relieve himself by the side of the road and mm-hmm. he spotted Nessie splashing around in the middle of the lake. He raced back to his car, grabbed his camera, snapped four shots as quickly as he could before the old beast just disappeared beneath Never the mind, waves. isn't there apparently thousands of people around the lake at all times waiting to s- but he just happened to be there and there was no one there? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yep. This all sounds very legit. It's all tracking. Um, He said that the following day he wasn't sure what he'd seen and he didn't really trust his memory or his own eyes, so he'd taken the plates to a chemist to have them developed and printed, and when he got them back, he was the first person in the world to see that image that would then go on to become the iconic image of the Loch Ness Monster that we're all familiar with to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is still to this day called the surgeon's photo, even though, as you're about to see, He actually had no connection whatsoever to taking the photo. Um, But I will say, to this day, there are still, in 2020, hundreds of thousands of people who believe that it is actually a genuine photograph of a plesiosaur residing in Loch Ness, and they believe that the rest of the story that I'm about to tell you is just some sort of fabrication to try to cover up the fact that Nessie does exist. Well, you know... There are true believers out there. Everyone lies to us. I mean, Pete Evans said on 60 Minutes this week, don't believe the government. They all Question lie. Question everything you hear. Mm-hmm. And if he disappears or has an accident, you know it wasn't really an accident. <laughs> <laughs> because people and... want to get him for selling $15,000 heat lamps. All right, back to the story. So it's not to say that everyone believed what they saw. There were a lot of sceptics, thankfully, but those sceptics couldn't prove conclusively that the image was a fake. Mm. And if you've ever tried to debate a believer of a conspiracy theory, you know that convincing them to question their beliefs is rarely a battle that you're going to win, especially if you can't provide airtight proof of a lie. And you can't prove a negative. So, Mm -hmm. And also their go-to is well, I just feel sorry for you that you're not open-minded enough, like that you're not on the intelligence level that we are to see mm-hmm. things that you're not seeing. I feel sorry for you. You're missing out on the enlightenment that I'm enjoying. Yeah. Yep. Um, if you want to know more, go ahead and Google cognitive dissonance theory 
or expectant <laughs> attention theory to learn a little bit more about why people will always cling to their beliefs, even if it is only by the strand of a hair. Um, they will just be desperate to hang on to the thing that they have decided they believe in. Mm. Anyway, so the publication of this surgeon's photo, this iconic image fueled even deeper and broader fascination in Nessie. Thousands more people flocked to the lock and the race was on to not only capture another picture of the monster, but to deliver the old girl herself. Several businesses offered up a very generous bounty for capturing the monster alive. So trappers and hunters suited up and headed to the highlands. Um, The New York Zoo was offering $10,000 US to anyone who could capture Nessie. A British circus was offering £20,000 to anyone who could catch Nessie for them. Um, And in a hope to increase the credibility of Nessie sightings, there was this wealthy dude who opened a really successful insurance company. He hired 20 men to just monitor the lock from dawn till dusk in different locations around the shoreline paid them a full-time wage and then to make sure that they stayed alert all day every day he offered them all an incentive of one pound for every sighting they were able to report and so of course there were many 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 sightings Mm. by these gentlemen over the course of the time that they were there curious And the world just kept going more and more Nessie mad day by day. And so Wilson, the surgeon's fears, really did come true. He was fined £1,000 by the British Medical Association by allowing himself to become entangled in all this Nessie nonsense. Mm. So he got paid £100 by the Daily Mail and then fined 1000 by his bosses. Mm-hmm. Um, they said that he was advertising himself by having his name published in the papers. His credibility took a really big hit. Um, and media outlets continued to hound him really regularly over the following years to ask for more and more details on the sighting, and he would just refuse to comment time and time and time again. One time, though, he did let slip um, by trying to get these people off the trail. He said, I can't say anything. I was traveling with an unmarried woman who wasn't my wife at the time, just to hopefully stop the journos from asking him more information than he'd already volunteered. Yeah. And then finally, he was able to jump at the chance to escape the tabloid press when World War II broke out and he could just go and enjoy the blissful peace and anonymity of the battlefield. (laughs) And then from that point onwards, he stayed as far away as possible from all of the Nessie publicity madness. And after a lengthy stint in Papua New Guinea, he moved to his wife's hometown of Melbourne, where he died in 1969. Oh, in Australia. And he would probably hate that his name has become so closely linked to the Loch Ness Monster and that he is still credited with taking the most well-known image of Nessie because he did Wait, not take that Wait, what is his name? Photo. I've already forgotten. Robert Kenneth Wilson. Yeah, see, I didn't know that, so <laughs> I don't think it, people really... But if you Google him, it's the first oh, thing that okay. does come up, of course. He didn't take the photo and he never saw a monster in the lock. He never believed in Nessie. He never wanted to get embroiled in all of this. He just was a fun-loving gynecologist who (laughs) unwittingly was swept up and used as a pawn in Marmaduke, Arundel, Wetherill's devious plot to seek revenge on the Daily Mail. So explain, how did the surgeon get caught up in this web of lies? All right, so... Marmaduke, Arundel, Wetherell. Yeah. Why the vendetta against the Daily Mail? Well, um, 
Marmaduke was already pretty well known in the UK and around the world for a while, particularly in the 1920s. He'd produced and directed and starred in a number of silent films um, and then he went on to become an intrepid explorer in Africa and, more importantly, he became quite a famous and successful big game hunter in Africa. Um, And then when Nessie Mania was taking hold in 1933, he was the perfect high-profile monster hunter for the Daily Mail to commission to go and track down the world's new new favourite cryptozoological curiosity. Mm. Um, He was really experienced in stalking exotic prey and he was very, very media savvy. So the Mail paid him to travel to Loch Ness and find Nessie. And within just 48 hours of his arrival, he spotted a trail of very fresh foot prints on the beach by the side of the lock and he declared that they had been left by a very powerful soft-footed animal about 20 feet long and he started boasting to the world about how clever and talented he was because of how quickly he'd discovered the first ever physical evidence of the monster and his team took lots of photos of the footprints before making some plaster casts of them and they Mm -hmm. sent those plaster casts and photos off to the National History Museum in London to be analysed by top scientists. And, of course, the Daily Mail, uh, in all of their hubris, couldn't possibly wait for the natural history nerds to come back with their verdict on the validity of the prints. So they just went ahead. Oh, my God, what were the prints? I'll get to that. Um, But just to really understand how embarrassing this was for them, they published a front page headline, all caps, Monster of Loch Ness, not legend, but fact, exclamation mark. (laughs) (laughs) Above a picture of Duke Wetherell standing triumphantly in his boat on the lock. And many, many copies were sold. Much, much money was made by the mail. And Wetherell happily continued to search for Nessie in the lock until Mm -hmm. the scientists who studied the casts and the images of the prints very quickly and very correctly identified that the prints were the very distinctive footprints with four toes belonging to a hippopotamus. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't take them very long to recognise that every single one of the prints was 100% identical and to theorise that someone had just used a stuffed taxidermied (gasps) rear left foot of a hippo to stomp a track of prints in the mud by the lock. Yeah, I was going to say, why is a hippo next to a Scottish lake? (laughs) It was just like a foot (laughs) that they jammed, like a stamp. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, And at the time, it was somewhat fashionable to have an umbrella stand or an Mm. ashtray made of the leg of a huge mammal like an elephant or a rhino or a hippo. Um, For some reason, that sort of trophy was considered to be very elegant and desirable back in those days. Um, And when they found this out, the Daily Mail completely disowned Wetherell and publicly shamed him and he scurried back to London. He was a national disgrace. He was a global laughingstock. (sighs) And the Daily Mail basically led the chorus in ridiculing him and took no responsibility themselves for all the claims that they had published. Marmaduke, Ben Smutching, Skittlebrain (laughs) Sticks. Dear, dear, dear. Poor Duke. Um, The world just figured that Marmaduke was this big game hunter who'd killed and stuffed at least one of 
pretty much every African animal in yeah. the last few years. And of course, he would just happen to have a hippo foot lying around somewhere. And everyone figured he'd been just arrogant enough to assume that he'd get away with a hoax like this for as long as he wanted before mm. anyone figured it out. And he could just continue to bask in the global spotlight, be paid for the mail to hunt for Nessie indefinitely. Um, to this day, though, we don't really know who planted those hippo prints on the beach. Some believe oh, it that it was him. Marmaduke Weatherall himself and that he was arrogant. Some people think that it was just some unknown local prankster who managed to trick him. Some people, including my very own family members, believe that it was the Daily Mail themselves who conjured the perfect scheme to be able to sell a shitload of papers off the back of a prank and then be able to just throw Marmaduke under the bus and dodge all responsibility. No way. I think he got there. I think he thought he would find this thing and he got there and he realised either it wasn't real, he was never going to find it and he freaked out and so he you know, wanted to keep getting paid. So he just, <laughs> boop, 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 there you go. Mm-hmm. It was discovered a few years later that he did indeed own a hippo foot ashtray. And I'll send you a photo of it, by the way. If you want okay. to, you can go ahead and post it on the Just The Juice podcast. What we do know for sure, though, is that when he got back home, he vowed to his 21-year-old son, Ian, that he was going to have his revenge on the Daily Mail for the way that they treated him after the hoax was revealed. Um, We didn't really hear about this, though, until 1994 when the son, Ian, shortly before he died, quoted his father as saying, all right, we'll give them their monster before he started (laughs) hatching his scheme. Perfect, like villain scene in a cartoon. Isn't it like great? putting, like drumming his fingertips together. We'll give them their monster, and then <laughs> swishing his cape and walking off in the other direction. All right, so 1934, Marmaduke and Ian assembled a crack team of specialists to execute this devious plan. They got Marmaduke's stepson, who conveniently was a sculptor named Christian Sperling. They Uh got him to build a model of the creature's neck and head out of Mm. putty and attach it to the periscope of a wind-up submarine toy that they'd bought for two shillings and six pence at Woolworths. smart. Um, It took them eight days to finish making this model and ensure that it looked convincing and making sure that it was going to float. And when they were satisfied with it, Duke and Ian headed north to go back to the lock. Mm. Duke's friend, Maurice Chambers, helped them get it out onto the lock where they could take their photos. And they took about five snaps before they then heard a noise coming towards them and realised that the lock's local water bailiff was coming along. And so they very quickly just stamped on the model as hard as they could to make it sink. (laughs) Um, And that model, by the way, has never been recovered. It is still somewhere below the surface of Loch Ness. Interesting. When they got the images back, the team felt pretty confident that they were compelling and convincing enough that the Daily Mail was absolutely going to fall for them. So they just now needed someone who had an immaculate reputation, a lot of credibility in the community, and also happened to love a good, fun-natured prank. Conveniently, Maurice had a friend who was visiting at the time who happened to be an army man and a surgeon and a gynecologist and an all-round serious, believable type who also happened to enjoy a bit of a good laugh. Oh, so he... Robert Kenneth Wilson. He knew it was a prank. Yes, Oh. 
he was just a friend of a friend who they managed to convince to submit the images to the Daily Mail. Oh, God, and, and then it just became his whole effing life. That's right. He oh, how annoying. It was all just in good fun. He thought the Daily Mail would never, ever fall for a prank this silly. He really overestimated them. <laughs> He was, in his mind, literally handing them pictures of a child's toy that had been made to resemble a monster <laughs> on the 1st of April, 1934. <laughs> April Fool's Day. And they still oh, went for no. it. He never, ever imagined what a stir the pictures were going to cause and he instantly wanted to distance himself from what he saw yeah. as just this fun prank that had gone horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> oh, no. Poor Dr. Evil, Wilson. I know. Evil genius Marmaduke, though, was just watching on in utter <laughs> glee as the Daily Mail took the bait and published his picture of a submarine toy with a Play-Doh neck on top of it again <laughs> and again and again on issue after issue after issue. But then, from this point, that's where it becomes a little bit unclear on why Duke, Marmaduke, never delivered the final death blow to the Daily Mail. Because we can assume that his plan all along was to eventually go to a rival newspaper and reveal that it Mm. was a hoax to them and leave the Daily Mail with a lot of egg on their face. Um, Back when his hoax had been exposed, a lot of other papers were revelling in ridiculing the Daily Mail um, once Hippo Great broke. Um, So surely at least one of them would have been more than happy to jump at the chance to Mm. embarrass the Daily Mail once again, but he never got around to doing that. And he did live for another five years after this hoax, um, after the images were published. So it's not like he ran out of time. There are a couple of theories for why Marmaduke never exposed his own hoax. Yeah, like to what end? If if the Daily Mail just kept publishing these pictures and people thought they were real, didn't he do a good thing for the Daily Mail? Yes, he definitely did because they own the rights to this image, which has... (laughs) Yeah. Been published many, 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 many times. So some people think that he was just trying to cling on to some level of credibility for himself and he just wasn't willing to get directly connected to the prank. Okay. So that theory says, okay, he expected that Wilson was going to be the one to come forward and claim responsibility for the mm. prank um, and that no one would then ever need to know about Marmaduke's involvement and he'd be able to protect his reputation while destroying the Daily Mail. Um, Mm -hmm. because there is the possibility that he could have been even more ridiculed than he already had been for the fact that he got his family members to stick Play-Doh on top of a submarine and take a photo of it as a a way of trying to take revenge on a publication. Sure. Um, But then, of course, Wilson just walked away from it and wouldn't get involved. Yeah. That's what some people believe. Another theory is that once he saw how many people desperately wanted to believe that the image was real, his heart melted and his need for revenge dissipated. No, not that one. Move on. My chosen theory. Anyone called Marmaduke doesn't have a heart. We know this. (laughs) Move on. He's a big game hunter. He's not the empathetic type. Yeah. I think he approached the Daily Mail directly and he effectively blackmailed them into paying him a lot of money to just keep it all quiet. That way he got a great big pile of cash and the Daily Mail could continue cashing in on owning the rights to what would become one of the most widely published and iconic photographs of the 20th century. And then I reckon when Marmaduke 
Arundel Weatherall died in South Africa in 1939. He died on a pile of hush money and... Oh, so he died only a few years later. Yeah, only five years after this little hoax took place. Ah. Yeah. Um, At any rate, the only reason that we know most of the details of this story is because a couple of very, very clever Nessie heads um, who've dedicated their lives to studying the lock and more than 4,000 accounts of monster sightings. Their names oh, are not Martin losers at all. <laughs> um, they tracked hey down Hey, man, I've Christian spent 100 Sperling. probably full days of my life reading about Titanic. We're all secret losers. <laughs> Everyone's got a secret loser thing. Everyone. And... They're not alone as Nessie heads either. The amount of people and the passionate debates that take place online on some of the forums that I've seen Mm. in the last few days um, really indicates that there are some diehard Nessie believers. Oh, you've gone deep. You've gone deep on Nessie forums. Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, For observation purposes only. Obviously. Yeah. So these guys, they tracked down Christian Sperling, the guy who actually made the model, after they figured out that he had a connection to Maurice Chambers and to Robert Kenneth Wilson. Um, And then in the final months of his life, they got him to spill the beans about what had actually gone on with this hoaxes. So they blew this wide open in the 1990s. Um, They did a very good job of revealing to the world the true origins of the surgeon's photo. It was in 1994 that they published their findings. Um, But even though they don't believe that the photograph is real, they do genuinely believe that Nessie is real and she is out there and she looks like a plesiosaur, very, very similar to the one that happens to be in the surgeon's photograph. That's some epic cognitive dissonance right there, isn't it? (laughs) That's... (laughs) That is like textbook. Their strongest argument is that if Nessie didn't exist, then more than 4,000 people wouldn't be saying that they had seen Nessie. That's their idea. But they all have a different version of Nessie. Correct. (laughs) So what do you think? 4,000 different bizarre looking animals exist hiding in the lake at all times? (laughs) Come on. Come on, guys. It was actually just last year um, indicated. So they did this test on the lock um, where they could trace all the different types of DNA that were present in water samples Uh throughout the lock. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it was all just animals that we already know and love, everything from beavers through to eels, nothing Mm -hmm. that was in any way mysterious or surprising. But, of course, they just point to that as evidence that this is just one giant government cover-up and that they don't want us to know the truth. Mm. By the well, way, obviously, if you're interested in becoming a Nessie watcher yourself, you can actually look at the lock using Google Street View. <laughs> I was going to say, like, is there, because you know how, um, you know, zoos set up those cameras so you can all, like, 24 hours a day, you can log on and, like, look at a panda or whatever. Do they have that on the lake? So people can just sit at their computer waiting to see, like, just waiting. They sure do. They've got street view and then they've got satellite view as well. (gasps) Oh, my God. So some people would literally sit there going, oh, but if I leave, if I leave in the next minute, it could be the minute that that he pops his head up and takes a breath or whatever. At least one sighting using Google. Oh, of course. Earth view as well. Of course. Yeah. Um, So. 
that is the end of the story. We almost never found out this level of detail because just before the final one of them died, they were able to finally tell their story oh of how gosh. they created this incredible hoax in an attempt to take down the Daily Mail. And while that may not have been successful, they definitely did inspire a lot of Nessie heads from that point onwards. They inspired a lot of deep, deep, deep held beliefs. Um, and they inspired the scene. You named my daughter after the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> Iconic. I Iconic. Do not get the reference at all. But, people um, will. Trust me. People great. will. <laughs> right? They will. Is that another shameful revelation that I haven't seen any of the Twilight movies? God, no. That's probably good for you. <laughs> they are hilarious to watch, though. So, I mean, that's nuts. So, basically... The most famous photo of the Loch Ness Monster only came into being because someone was trying to take down the Daily Mail. Correct. Yes. Crazy. And trying to that take is... them down because he believed that they had taken him down. That is an excellent anecdote for a dinner party, my friend, because everybody knows that photo. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, like, I never – that's really funny. It was all about petty revenge. Um, we could probably actually publish um, on the Just the Gist Instagram an image of what the model actually looked like underneath okay. the surface and the wind-up submarine toy that they'd purchased. Yeah, the <laughs> wind-up <laughs> submarine toy. It's so good. Oh, my gosh. And I'll send so you the, the hippopotamus foot as well. The moral of the story is the best stories involve petty revenge and also never trust someone called Marmaduke. Spinach watch Benny Cambridgeton. Anyone called Marmaduke is a villain. Marmaduke. Marmaduke. accent. Oh, wait, wait. Mar- Marmaduke. Marmaduke. Weatherell. Marmaduke. Weatherell. <laughs> Why do I stick my head forward like a Marmaduke? <laughs> like the Loch Ness Monster. Why does somebody not know how to flush the toilet after they've had a shit? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was f***ing one of yours. <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> this is solid gold podcast content. <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. From us icons to you. Um, mm. So we give you just the gist, but if people want to know more, what can they... Um, Read, look at. We'll put I'll it in put the show a notes. Of links um, into the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, just to wrap it up with um, a little bit of a moral to the story. I mean, all the right. fact is, all media outlets are going to publish what is going to make them the most money by getting them the most attention, whether that's in the short term as a money grab or in the long term by trying to maintain their credibility. But it's always important to maintain awareness of that. Media outlets are there to make money from your attention. Yeah. And also, most people will believe whatever it is that they want to believe and their brains are always going to filter everything and distort it or defy it or delete it in some way. And in a time like this where so much is so contentious and we are seeing so much coming at us through social media and through inverted commas traditional media, it's good to just maintain those two um, bits of information front of mind Mm. when you're looking at what people are trying to feed you. That is very intelligent and profound, Jacob. And I will add to that, never trust someone called Marmaduke Schnitzelbutenbein. (laughs) 
And that's it from us this week. Catch you on the flip side. Love you. Love you. Best wishes. Warmest regards. Bye. Bye. Listener.